continuing on going through the word of the Lord. I commend you. Those of you that uh, are not, I encourage you uh, to continue or jump back on the bus. Get started right now and uh, stay in the word of the Lord because it's such strength. It keeps you on track. The Bible says um, that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That means if we're not in the word, we start to wander. We get off track. We get off the path. Are you with me? If I'm not in the word, I don't have light and I get off the path. I get lost in the woods. I, I, I get entangled, tangled up in the, uh, in the undergrowth. But, but if I stay in the word, it, it becomes a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I know my direction and I know my purpose and I know my destiny. And I'm thankful for the word of the Lord. Amen. And I'm thankful for the things that I'm learning. And I've read through the Bible a number of times, but I'm learning more and more. Uh, this time as we read through in the New Living Translation, I understand as I read this translation that uh, if I have anything that causes me questions uh, about doctrine, uh, that uh, I need to go back and look at the King James Version uh, to find out um, what the King James Version says. And if I have to, find out what the Greek says, uh, Greek or the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Uh, because um, in the Living Bible, you'll find that there are times when it does what's called interpolation. Uh, which means to uh, kind of make clear what it's saying, which is okay most of the time. Uh, but uh, sometimes the uh, translator may assume that they know something that, that uh, the Word of God teaches or says, and they'll make assumptions. So I'm not telling you that this translation is bad. It's a great translation to help you read through. But when it comes to doctrinal issues, you need to go back to uh, the King James Version or the Greek or the Hebrew is the best place to go if you can go there. Uh, if you have a computer program or Bible program, a nice thing to do is to look at various translations. It gives a, a very clear rendering of the passage. One that I'm thinking of uh, that I read just this week was Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, where the King James Version says, and every other version says, essentially, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, and the New Living Translation said, The Lord is God alone. Um, which kind of softens the monotheistic emphasis. And so uh, we find out what the, 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 uh, the Hebrew, in fact, here says. But amen. I'm, I'm excited uh, about remaining in the word of the Lord. I'm excited about what Jesus is doing in my life and in your lives as well. If you have your one-year Bibles, you can turn to uh, the date March number 25th. If you don't have your one-year Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter number 4. Deuteronomy chapter number 4. And uh, verse number 15, that is uh, the date on that uh, in your one-year Bible is March 25th. And uh, uh, the, word, the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy uh, is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to pronounce. And a lot of people say Deuteronomy uh, when they try to pronounce Deuteronomy. Uh, it's just a kind of a difficult one to uh, uh, pronounce. And I asked my wife... Um, uh, what does this word Deuteronomy mean? Do you know what it means? Uh, and she said it has something to do with the duty of the man named Romani. And I said, no. I said, uh, that's good. You know, that's good, uh, a good effort at entomology or study of word study. Uh, but the word Deuteronomy actually means second telling of the law is really what Deuteronomy means. And if you look at Deuteronomy, it's essentially Moses' final statements to the children of Israel prior 
to his death and prior to them going into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So uh, it's basically Moses summing up everything that uh, he has been led by God to instruct God's people about uh, based on the laws, uh, the commandments that the Lord's given. And so it's a second telling. And uh, as you study the context as you're reading it, you realize Moses, it tells that Moses says, Lord, please let me go through into the promised land. You've told me all about it. God said, no, quit fighting with me about it. You're not going in. He said, but you can go up to the top of the mountain. I believe it was Mount Pisgah. He said, you can look over uh, north, south, east, uh, or north, south, west, up and down, anywhere you want to look across the Jordan into the promised land. You can look in, but you're not going in. And so with that knowledge, Moses came down and basically gave his last words and last statements to the children of Israel. And part of that was a final retelling of the law, emphasizing those things that were so very important that God had put into uh, Moses himself. And uh, in uh, chapter in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter number 4 and verse 15, it says, But be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. In other words, you didn't see what God looked like. Everybody got that so far? You didn't see what God's shape was. It says, so do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form. Don't try to create something out of wood or stone or any other material and say, well, this is the form of Jehovah or this is God. Whether of a man or of a woman, an animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground or a fish in the deepest sea. When you look up into the sky and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced. Everyone say seduced. Don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. Remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron-smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. He vowed that I would not cross the Jordan River into the good land. The Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. You will cross the Jordan to occupy the land, but I will not. Instead, I will die here on the east side of the river. And then he says, so be careful. He says, be careful again. Be careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make idols of any shape or form, for the Lord your God has forbidden this. I think he's trying to make a point here, don't you? The Lord your God is a devouring fire. He is a jealous God. And I heard this word jealous translated. Uh, he is passionate about his relationship with you. He's passionate about his position with you. 25, in the future when you have children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, do not corrupt yourself by making idols of any kind. He said, this is not a message just for today. This is a message for the future. This is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and will arouse his anger. Today I call on heaven and earth as witnesses against you. If you break my covenant, look at this, 
you will quickly disappear from the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. When you get into the promised land, rather than prospering, you will disappear. You will live there only a short time, then you will be utterly destroyed. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations where only a few of you will survive. There in a foreign land you will worship idols made from wood and stone. When you get scattered into the foreign land, you'll get your wish. Gods that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. And that we could go on and on, and I could read various passages from Deuteronomy where it clearly declares emphatically. Moses says, here's going to be your stumbling block, children. Here's what's going to trip you up. And that is the tendency or the desire to worship and serve and create other gods with a small g. Instead of worshiping the one true God with the big G. And then in Deuteronomy chapter uh, number 6. In Deuteronomy chapter number, uh, I'm sorry, it's chapter 5. He uh, retells the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments, starting at Gener- uh, Deuteronomy 5 and 6. It's March 26th if you're in your one-year Bibles. It says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Number seven, you must not have any other God but me. Eight, and you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I think that makes it plain there, right? God says, I will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even the children, the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. And then he goes on with the rest of the eight commandments. But first and foremost, at the top of the list, right out of the chute, if you would, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall not make unto yourself any graven images that you would worship. Now, as you study deeper in the Old Testament, you understand that this was Israel's primary problem. The children of Israel's issue that they struggled with and fought with, where they displeased the Lord, where they failed the Lord was in the arena or the area of idolatry. Let me give you a little background here. The point here is these are the uh, conditions of the covenant that God was making with the children of Israel. If you remember back uh, from the Bible reading in the book of Genesis, that God made a covenant with Abraham. And uh, Sister Jackie, we studied this in our Bible study, how that uh, an ancient covenant was uh, an agreement that was made between two people or two groups of people that they would protect one another, be friends with one another, have, re- have positive relations with one another. And a uh, typical way that they would uh, sign or seal the covenant was, was an ancient ritual called the cutting of the covenant, which was where they would cut uh, on the uh, wrist or the upper arm here, and uh, both parties would cut in the same place. And then they would clasp arms. They would clasp arms like this. 
mingling of the blood, number one. And number two, there would be a forever sign of the cutting of the covenant. And this was the uh, agreement between two men that either their relationships or the family relationships or even if they represented groups of people that they were making covenant and terms of covenant with one another, that they were uh, going to protect and serve uh, one another. And, of course, Abraham's covenant was with God was unique because this was a covenant between a human being and divinity. And uh, so to, to think that God would enter into covenant with an individual is really an amazing concept when you think that God created all of the world. The Bible says it was Abraham's faith in God or the fact that he believed in God, even if he didn't understand who God was, that God said, I'm going to count that as righteousness and I'm going to make covenant with you. And I'm going to bless them that bless you. I'm going to curse them that cursed you. And uh, I'm going to give you a great seed and a great progenity. And through you shall all, through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So there was a spiritual blessing there as well that went with the covenant. And the sign of the covenant between Abraham and God was not a cutting of the arm, but it was a cutting of the male foreskin. Each child, each male child, eight days old, circumcision was the sign of the cutting of the covenant between God's chosen people, the sons of Abraham, and by extension specifically, the sons of Isaac, and even more specifically, the sons of Jacob, whose name would be called Israel, was God's chosen people, and they were to remember and always uh, maintain this sign of the covenant. But it was more than just cutting the covenant. It was about being submitted and committed and obedient to God. God says, if you obey me, if you fear me, if you worship me alone, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with financial blessings. And I'm going to bless you in a great way. And we look at Abraham and we look at the children of Israel, and there is great blessings upon them financially. And, uh, uh, but more than that were the spiritual blessings that were promised. And so Moses, now generations later, is a representative of the God of Abraham to the people of Abraham. And saying to them, you're about to go into the promised land that God promised your father, Abraham, or great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. You're about to seize the promise. You're about to take hold of the promise. But I want to remind you of the terms of your covenant with God. And if you break this covenant, then God is not bound to his side of the covenant. He won't protect you. He won't bless you. He won't prosper you. He won't give you. The promised land, because it's all about a covenant of agreement. So it's it's uh, like a contract. You do your things, and and someone and the other side will do their things. Just like when you're purchasing a home and you enter into escrow, the purpose for escrow is to determine if both sides are going to fulfill their portion of the agreement. And uh, this is what Moses was declaring, and the point that he emphasized, and we see that he did it with good reason. It was a prophetic uh, warning. Be careful. Be careful that you don't fall prey to a tendency uh, to worship and serve idols. And uh, uh, we see uh, that uh, through the Old Testament, this was a weakness. This was a failure. And uh, whenever they would worship graven images and, and idolatry was rampant, it was just the order of the day. In ancient times, pagan believers, and uh, we, we think of pagan believers just a small little group of people over here that worshipped a pantheon of false gods or worshipped idols. In reality, everybody but the Hebrews during this time was subject to the allure 
of worship of idols or false gods. That means nine people out of ten were pagan worshipers that worshipped a pantheon of gods and worshipped idols and graven images. And uh, they had temples and they practiced all kinds of vile uh, practices of worship. There was something in their heart that caused them to want to worship a god. But in their humanity, they tried to create a god. And um, I think I've said it before, but when you study Greek mythology and the gods uh, of, of pagan belief systems, these were gods that were flawed and very human. And rather than man being made in the image of God, these are gods that were made in the image of people. And uh, so uh, these false gods uh, and, and the idols that were made became a temptation and a stumbling block for the children of Israel. So uh, whenever they got cold in their spirit, if you would, or disobedient from God or detached from His law, because in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, when we read the Shema, here is the Lord our God is one Lord, uh, Moses tells the people they are to speak of the law of God. Talk of it frequently. Speak to your children. Speak to them when they wake up. Speak with them when they go on the way. Speak, to it, speak it to them before they go to sleep. He said, even bind it on your head. Wrap it around your neck so that you know the law of God. Don't let it depart from you. But when they departed from the law of God, the first stumbling block, the first tendency to fail, the first weak point was their tendency to look around at the nations surrounding them that they were going to go in and dispossess the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Grababites, the Pickaphites, whatever they were, a bunch of ites there. And, uh, and uh, when they went in there and they saw their false gods, they fell prey to the temptation to worship tangible physical images that had ears that couldn't hear, a mouth that couldn't speak. It was carved out of wood or stone. And uh, uh, the Lord in Deuteronomy also warned them, when you move into the promised land, don't intermarry with these groups of people because you will be tempted. You'll fall into the trap of idolatry. Idolatry, unquestionably, is the greatest scourge on the Old Testament church, if you would, or Israel, God's chosen people, was idolatry. And so I, I think we can all agree and understand, if we know Scripture at all, that this is a fact. This is what caused them to go to Babel, into Babylonian captivity, as, as was being prophesied right here. You're going to be taken and dispersed among the nations. There's only going to be a remnant that will remain. But if you'll cry unto God, He'll remember His promise to you. But sometimes you'll have to go through a time of punishment, a, a time of correction, a time of, uh, uh, of pain in order to God, get you to cry unto the Lord. And you'll realize then finally, and, and when uh, the children of Israel came back into Israel after Babylonian captivity, they were finally cured from idolatry. And uh, we, we don't read about it anymore as being an issue among the followers of Jehovah. But now I want to speak to the New Testament church, which is what we're a part of today. Because there is a principle here. If God says number one and number two in his Ten Commandments is... Worship the Lord God and Him only. Love Him with all your heart. Have no gods beside Him. And number two is don't make any graven images or anything in this world that can take the place of Jehovah. And this was the major stumbling block. This was the primary commandments. Then I'm thinking in the New Testament church, there's got to be a, a primary stumbling block for us as well. 
And what is the issue? Does idolatry translate into the New Testament as an issue for us to deal with? I look in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, when the new Gentile believers were brought into the church, the Gentile believers were pagans. Everybody understand that? The church started, the New Testament church started after the book of Acts with only Jewish believers. And these were people who had been cured from idolatry. They had no issues with idolatry anymore. And so, but then when Cornelius' household and others began to become a part of the New Testament church, these were people who came in who had lots of connections to idolatry and pagan worship. And so in Acts chapter 15 is where the Gentiles were being addressed. What do we do with the Gentiles? What do we do we make them be circumcised? Do we require them to uh, obey all the ceremonial laws of Judaism? And James says there's only one thing in, in Acts chapter 15, and that is that they need to abstain from the pollution of idolatry or idols in Acts chapter 15. And then also in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, the Bible speaks very clearly, and I, I'm just talking here about um, idolatry as translated into the New Testament and principles about idolatry. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, But ye be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord have Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Verse 16, And what agreement hath the temple of God, which is you and me, our bodies are the temple. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." It says, what connection does idols have with the temple of God? He's saying, in effect, when you receive the Spirit of God, you become the temple of God. And there should be no connection between God's temple and idolatry, worshiping and serving of idols. And then in 1 John, right before Revelation, 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 21, John here in this writing gives a warning, and he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's the final word of this second letter, uh, second letter from John or epistle from John, our first letter. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I, looked at, I like what the New Living Translation said. It kind of shed some light onto it. It said, Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Little children... Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And so when we're talking about idolatry, let's be honest. We live in a world that doesn't necessarily have a problem with worshiping and serving graven images. I mean, we don't see a lot of it, do we? I mean, there are people who are not godly, not Christians, not serving God, but we don't necessarily see them going to pagan temples and bowing down before carved images, do we? That's not really an issue today. And I know there's some that would argue, yeah, but uh, in uh, some branches of, of the Catholic faith, there's worship of icons and, and uh, uh, 
uh, carved images, and, and, and definitely uh, this is a problem, this is an issue. But as far as a widespread issue, in terms of like the Old Testament was everybody who was not a believer in Jehovah basically worshipped pagan gods. And so this was the rest of the world. The rest of the world, pagan idol worshippers. For us, the rest of the world are not idol worshippers. They're not worshipping graven images. But the world that we live in is still characterized by idolatry. Even though it's not graven images, even though it's not carved images, we don't have a problem with 40,000 people in Pasadena going out and bowing down before a totem pole that's carved and painted. We don't have problems with that. But the issue is anything that takes God's place in your heart, anything that takes God and, by extension, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the throne of our heart is our chiefest of issues in terms of problems. Anything that takes a priority over the things of God and over our devotion and worship to Jehovah and Jesus Christ is idolatry in the New Testament church. And uh, I've thought about this and I've considered it and I thought in 2007, what is a modern form of idolatry? Because whatever it is, we as the church need to guard against it. Whatever it is, we as believers and leaders of the kingdom of God need to make sure that we don't fall prey because there is obviously a a natural tendency in human nature to fall prey to idolatry. It happened every time with the children of Israel. And, And I know that we in 2007, we don't have a lust and a temptation for graven images. But there are things in our lives that will seek to take God's position, seek to take that place of priority and position. And whatever it is, be it a hobby, be it a tangible or an intangible thing, or a person, an individual, family member, whatever it is, or a relationship, whatever it is that would take the place of God in our lives becomes an idol. And God says, I hate it. I'm jealous of it. I'm jealous of your primary affection. I'm jealous of the throne that I'm supposed to sit on in your life. I'm jealous of the first position and the first place in your life. I want you to understand understand that I believe God wants us to put him first in our lives. And when he is not first in our lives, we are no different than the children of Israel, who the Bible says they went whoring after false gods and whoring after idols. And whenever we let anything take that position of God out of our lives, then we must be careful. We must repent. We must restore the Lord Jesus Christ to his primary position. And I, I asked my wife, I talked to her, I said, what do you think? What do you think is the modern day extension of idolatry? And uh, she said, I think it's sports. And uh, she said, people that don't go to church on Sunday, what usually keeps them from church? Where's the biggest gatherings of people on a Sunday? Sports, sports arenas. And people are screaming. They're expressive. 
and their excitement over what's happening. And uh, this is something that captures people's attention and takes their, the place of God. Yeah, I used to go to church, but I stay home because on Sundays when the games are. And uh, see, that's, I, I remember one time I was with a friend of mine who was had recently come into the church. He was a sports fanatic, and he had recently come into the church. And we were hanging out with some other guys that weren't really dedicated Christians. We were Bible school kids, and we were with them, and, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. I say Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, we knew who was going to play, and there, there was a lot of excitement about the game. And uh, these guys that weren't very dedicated, they said, Hey, are you guys, uh, are you guys going to uh, um, w- uh, watch the game uh, Sunday night? And... Uh, uh, my friend Steve said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to church. And they said, oh, man, it's only one Sunday a year. And Steve said, I, you know, if God came and I was watching the Super Bowl instead of at church, I don't think I'd go to heaven. And the other guy's like, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. I've never heard of anything like that. But to Steve, he knew that if he put football ahead of the kingdom of God, that he was, in fact, placing an idol This may not have been true for anybody, but for Steve, he understood that he was making a priority judgment there. He was making a judgment. And uh, uh, am I saying that all sports are are devilish and all sports are bad? I'm not saying that all sports are devilish or all sports are, are bad. I'm just saying, isn't it curious that when it comes to worship and devotion and following and commitment, I mean... Just think about it. They wear shirts and all the time, and uh, and uh, they're, they they express their dedication uh, through their attendance and purchasing of tickets and following of these people, almost like a religion. And these are people that have no religion other than that. And 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 this is a a modern form of idolatry worship. Anything that takes the place of God that can get on the throne of God in our lives. And there are other things as well. One other thing that uh, I've noticed is uh, in, in our current day is entertainment, Hollywood in, in specific. These are things that can take the place of God. Where, where are my kids getting their values from? Well, they're getting them from the TV. They're supposed to be getting them from the Lord. They're supposed to be getting them from God. And there are things some people, their career or their pursuits can get in the place of the Lord. And it can become the primary objective of their life. I've watched kids and young people let their education come before the things of God. And I remember, I remember Philip Hampton, he graduated from high school. He was valedictorian, top in his class. And then he went to college at Lambeth University valedictorian, first in his class. Then he went to Vanderbilt for, uh, 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 for um, a graduate school, first in his class. Uh, and throughout all of that, he did not miss a single prayer meeting, Sunday service, Wednesday night Bible study. He did not miss a single one, and he came out on top of his class. But there's people that argue, no, I, I have to do this. I have to miss or I have to be involved with this because of my commitment to my schooling and to my education. You know what? Anything that takes the place of God in your life 
can turn into an idol. And I know this is maybe a little hard, a little fast and a little strong and a little bit between the eyes. uh, But I feel impressed to the Lord to remind us that if we want to be the church... If we want to be the church, we've got to remember, amen, that God has called us because he loved us. And he said, all I'm asking of you is obey my commandments and put me first in your life. If you put me first in your life and jealously guard that position, I mean jealously guard that position. Say, yeah, there's a lot of other things that are important to me. My family's important to me, but my family's not more important than my God. Amen. My friends are important. My career is important. My education is important. Uh, My hobbies are fun. But there is nothing that should come between me and my God. And not just come between, but there's nothing that should take the throne in my life that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And I believe an extension of idolatry from the Old Testament into your life is anything that is more important, anything that garners more of your passion, anything that garners more more of your love and your attention than the Lord Jesus Christ becomes an idol in your life. And I feel like God's talking to me. I feel like God's talking to us. He's saying, I want to send you revival. He's saying, I want you to walk in the promised land. He's saying, I want you to and your family to experience the blessings that I promised to you. But I need you, I need you to remember that I am first and I won't take any other place in your life. If I'm not first, I don't want to be in your life. I am jealous about that position. I am jealous about your commitment and service to other gods. So I want Jesus to be first. Everybody say first. Put up one finger and say first, first. Lord, you're first in my life. You're first in my life. And not just in speech, not just in what I say, not just in my comments. But, Lord, I want you first in my passion. I want you first in my priorities. I want you first in my finances, Lord God. I want to seek you with all of my heart. And if I put you first, you have promised me that you're going to bless my family. You're going to take care of my needs. If I seek first the kingdom, I don't have to worry about anything else. If I put you first, hallelujah, and if I jealously guard that position for you, amen, I jealously guard that position. There is no relationship. There is no friendship. There is no pursuit. There is nothing that is going to push you out of the throne room of my life. And God, whenever you wake me up and remind me that I've let something else get on the throne, I've let something else become more important to me than Jesus Christ. Then, Lord, I want you to wake me up. I want you to shake me because, Jesus, I love you and I want to please you. And I'm passionate about your kingdom. I'm passionate about pleasing you. And I'm passionate about serving you with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I looked, I I noticed uh, when the Cain and Abel brought their offerings. The Bible says that Cain, Cain's offering was not respected by God. But Abel's offering was respected by the Lord. Anybody remember that, that particular story? And Cain became angry, jealous, lashed out, and even killed his brother Abel. And um, I always wondered, what, what's the problem here? Because Cain was a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. And he brings of the fruit of the ground. That seems natural, doesn't it? But however, Abel, he brings an animal. The Bible says it was the firstlings 
of the flock. And he offered it to the Lord there. And the Bible says Cain's offering was rejected. Abel's was accepted. I don't know how that was shown, whether God just said, that's good, that's bad, or whether he consumed the good sacrifice with fire and the bad sacrifice just sat there with no response from heaven. But we do know that God made it clear and Cain was upset because he said, he was saying, in effect, God, I brought this to you. I, I, I'm committed to offering this sacrifice. If you don't like it, that's not my problem. That's your problem. That was Cain's attitude, essentially. And God said to Cain, you know, if you'll make it right, everything will be fine. But if you don't do right, then sin is crouching at the door. Sin's lying at the door, ready to pounce. Sin's ready to pounce. And uh, sometimes we don't think about our worship and our commitment to the Lord being an opportunity for Satan to pounce. The way I worship and the way I serve the Lord is either God's blessing or an opportunity for Satan to pounce. And I noticed a couple things. I noticed, first of all, the obvious thing, and that is that Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice was not a blood sacrifice. That's the first thing I noticed. And I don't know how they would have known or should have known that this was the case, but for whatever reason, from the very beginning of Scripture, there's principles being revealed that shedding of blood is necessary to remission of sins. But secondly, I noticed, this is very uh, uh, incredible to notice, that it, it says that Cain brought of the fruit of the harvest. Abel brought the firstlings of the flock. What's the difference? The firstlings of the flock means the firstborn lamb. Whenever they were there in the delivery room, or whatever you want to call it, the barn and the stable, and the lambs were beginning to moan with their bloated, sweaty bellies, the mama sheep was about to give birth, it was good news. Because to a shepherd, guess what this is? Here comes the baby. It's a kid. Here comes the kid. Look. Mama's looking. Guess what it is? It's payday. Friday night. Got paid. Friday night. Just got paid. Look at my lamb. Look at my lamb. Gonna go buy something. Sam, I am. And uh, so they've got payday. And then there's another one born. There's another one born. This is God's blessing, right? Remember, that's how the Lord blessed Jacob above Laban, was by the births of these animals. Wow, great flocks means great riches. Abraham was wealthy, not because he had 401 programs and IRAs and CDs, but Abraham was wealthy because he had lots of cattle and lots of sheep. This was God's manifestation of wealth and blessing to a Bedouin or a shepherd person. And so it's payday. Just like when the farmer goes out and finally the crop is ripe. Finally it's time to pick. Pick the corn. Pick the grain. Harvest it. And when they harvest it, the Bible says those that brought an offering to the Lord were to bring the first fruits. First fruits means the first that's harvested, not that which comes later, not that which comes later on. In other words, you've been waiting all year for this harvest, and when you pluck the first ears of corn, rather than hungrily devouring, you say the first belongs to the Lord. 
The first belongs to God. And Abel understood this principle. He understood that in order for God to be God, I give him first and not leftovers. In order for God to be God, I give him first fruits. And God was pleased with the firstlings of the flock. But when Abel brought just of the fruit of the ground, God says, you're missing the principle. You're missing the point. And the point is, I want to be first in your life. I wish you could, I wish I could take the pure urge from the spirit realm and from the word of God that I'm feeling and put it into words. I'm ineffective at this, but the Spirit of the Lord is wanting to tell somebody and speak to your heart that God wants to bless you, that God wants to give provision into your life, that God wants to put His favor upon you. But when you don't put Him first, when you don't put Him first in your passion, when you don't put Him first in your priorities, when you don't put Him first in your scheduling, when you don't put Him first in your finances, He says, I don't want to be any place else. I'm jealous about that position. After all, he's my God. After all, he said, I'm going to take care of you. After all, he says, no matter what weapon the enemy forms, it's not going to hurt you. After all, he says, sickness can't take you. After all, he says, no enemy can destroy you. I'm on your side. I'm going to back you up. I'm going to watch over your kids. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bring favor into your life. And I said, thank you, Jesus. I said, thank you, Jesus. And he says, first. First, guard that position. Have no idols, no gods before me, no little G's that take the priority in my position. And throughout my life, oh man, God, I want to recommit myself to prayer. I want to recommit myself to your word. Your word, not the sports page. Ah, is it a sin to read the sports page? No, no, no. I hope not because I'm in bad trouble. Is it a sin to read the sports page and not read the Bible? Ouch! God says, put me first. Put me first in your life. Is it a sin to sit and look at things and and watch things and be entertained and you don't spend any time in prayer? The Bible talks about priorities. Is it a sin, amen? Is it a sin for me to spend money on my family and on things that I want and spend money on things that I need? No, it's not a sin. But is it a sin to steal from God to do these things? Yes, that is a sin, amen? And the Word of the Lord makes it clear and plain. And church, let me declare to you it's time to wake up and say when I get my paycheck the first thing I take care of is my responsibility to the Lord God Almighty not the leftovers amen the first belongs to the Lord amen and if you want God's blessings on your life don't put him down on the list if you want God's blessings in your life don't let anything in your life take that position of priority amen and prominence hallelujah I feel it in my heart God I want you to work me over God, I want you to straighten me out. God, I want you to knock me so that my marbles spin around and that when they stop spinning, they're in right priority and in right position. God, whatever you have to do to me, I don't want to fall prey to the, to the, to the uh, mistakes that the children of Israel made. Have no other gods before me. Worship God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Worship and serve Him only. He's going to be first. Let's stand and let's lift up our hands. Hallelujah. And let's express our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah.
Hallelujah, Jesus, I love you. 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 Time passes, as time passes, and and as as life spins by, and as we have all these priorities and things in life, we've got to take care of it. You know, nobody's suggesting that we just ignore life and just simply, you know, kind of just zone out and become Christian spiritual zombies. But the the suggestion is about priorities. But here's the deal: as you live your life, sometimes our passion about the kingdom and the things of God begins to wane. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's natural that we, we're not as passionate about it. And you can see it affect the entire congregation. That's why we've got to have preaching like we had Sunday. It's called a wake-up call. That's why we've got to have solid preaching of men that come in and aren't ashamed to stand up and say, Come on now. It's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to reassess where you are. It's time for you to take a little priority test and determine whether the Lord is first in your life. Because we have a tendency as human beings to drift, drift in our passion. And we find ourselves more excited, more excited about something that's happening out here or over there or our sports team or our hobby or our family or this or that. More excited about what's happening in these arenas of our life and the things of God just kind of implode like a sinkhole. And we're not even interested or intrigued, although we just fulfill our obligations. But God's saying, I want to put excitement back in your relationship with me. I want to return a spark to our little love affair that we're enjoying. I want to put excitement and joy and fire back in it. God's saying, I want to bless you. I want to bless you like you've never been blessed before. But I'm asking you, I'm asking, all I'm asking you is I want to be first in your life. I want to be first in your family. I want to be first. And you watch out and see him when you don't commit yourself to God. You're the apple of his eye. You're his church. He loves you. He died for you. He loves you. And when we begin to put him back on the throne, when we begin to show our love for him in every way that we can, he says, all right, you need a miracle in your family. Here's a miracle. You need a blessing on your life. I believe this with all my heart. You will need me to step in on your behalf. I'll do it for you. In the name of Jesus. Lift up your hands to him right now one more time if you would. Jesus. My uplifted hand is is a sign of surrender, Lord. My uplifted hand is a symbol of my surrender. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to pull a gun. I'm not going to pull a fast one on you, Lord, but I surrender. I surrender my life. 
I surrender my passion. I surrender my finances. God, you're going to bless this church with revival. You're going to bless my family. You're going to let me be a witness and reach other people. But God, I put myself in your hands. I'm your child. I'm your child. But even more, in Scripture it says, I'm your lover. You love me. You're the lover of my soul. And I love your soul. I surrender, Lord God. Let your spirit flow through me. Let your spirit work in me. Come on, lift up your voice to him right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's praise the Lord Jesus. Glory to the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Come on, let that passion bubble out of you just for a minute right now. Let that love for Jesus just flow out of you right now. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I'm here tonight not just to fulfill my obligation of going to church in the middle of a week, but I'm here tonight, Jesus, because I love you. I love you. I couldn't wait to spend time in your presence. I couldn't wait to feel your touch. Ah, I couldn't wait to hear your voice. I couldn't wait to sense your nearness. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I'm passionate about you. Jesus, I feel your presence. Hallelujah. Let's just love him for a couple moments before we go on home right now. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. You are the love of my life, Lord. You are the hope that I cling to. You mean more than this world to me I wouldn't trade you for silver and gold oh I wouldn't trade you for riches untold you are yes you are my everything Lord you You are my everything, Lord, you are the love of my life. Yes, you are the hope that I cling to. You mean more than this world to me. I wouldn't trade you for silver and gold. Lord, I wouldn't trade you for riches untold. You are, yes, you are my everything. Lord, you are, you're the love of my life. God, you are the hope that I cling to. This world to me, I wouldn't trade you for silver and gold. I wouldn't trade you for 
commitment to Jesus is going to get his attention. The Lord bless you. We love each and every one of you. Dismissed in the name of the Lord. God bless you. mention, uh, brothers and sisters, that uh, Sister Leticia, I want to mention that uh, uh, Sunday, um, she's all, again going to be um, uh, selling uh, some dinners for uh, uh, the children, to, uh, the young people to go to a youth convention. So just to let you know, if you want to, um, and we, she said, a lot of people said, why didn't you tell me last time? So we're telling you, and uh, it was awesome. It was really good. We're having a housewarming for Sister Christina at our house, and everybody's invited, but no children, please. Husbands may come. <laughs> Thank you.